right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Got a great episode coming here shortly with golf course designer and architect Bo Welling. Uh, you may know Bo for his work at the West Course at the new Omni Fields Ranch PGA Frisco course. Complicated name. Uh, the, the new course in Frisco, Texas, the uh, the non-championship course. Gil Hans did the championship course. Bo Welling did the other course there. Uh, we talked about his relationship with Tiger Woods. If you're familiar, he has uh, done a lot of design work with Tiger Woods for, for Tiger's design firm. We talk about a lot of their projects around the globe and state of the golf industry, the COVID boom, all the things that are kind of going on in golf and uh, just had a really fun time nerding out a little bit with uh, a fellow golf nerd. I think you guys will enjoy this episode. Uh, just one ad this week. Shout out to our friend Brandel and shout out to our friends at Roback. You guys know Roback. Best fit, best feel. They are fresh off new restocks of our favorite polos, hoodies, and Q-zips. They got a lot of great new styles. I get so excited when I see those Roback boxes hit my front doorstep because they're always sending us uh, the absolute freshest stuff, which you see us wear in many videos on our live shows, many different places. Even when I'm not on camera. I'm usually wearing a rollback hoodie. Uh, the performance polos are great. The material is moisture wicking, has great stretch. The collar is crisp. It does not lose its shape and they fit so much better than those old boxy polos do. The performance hoodies, so many different styles, so many different fabrics that they use in them, but they're all so soft. They're great to wear, uh, especially in winter golf here in Jacksonville. I love throwing on a hoodie. Don't get too hot in it usually, and it keeps you plenty warm uh, when it is a bit cooler here. Lastly, the Performance Q-Zips are back. They're great. We love them. Great for a night out on the town or playing golf as well. If you haven't, it is time to load up on some Roback for yourself or for others. Use code NLU at Roback.com for 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off bottoms, Q-Zips, hoodies, and more with code NLU. Get ready for the golf season with Roback. Without any further delay, here is Bo Welling. What are you working on currently? Well, what's what's currently on your docket? You know, I mean, like many people, it's busy um, in the golf world, the golf design world. And some of my younger teammates, you know, keep saying, geez, what else is going on? Like, why are we doing all this work? And like, I can remember when it was, uh, the phone didn't ring at all. And we just sat around looking at each other. And that wasn't a lot of fun because we're not very attractive. So, so it's a very fun, exciting time. So to answer your question specifically, we're under construction in a couple of places on the Bowelling design side. So we're doing a big project in the Scottish Highlands for Discovery Land Company called Taymouth Castle. We've got four or five holes grassed and should get the rest grassed this year. Uh, doing a big renovation of the Peninsula Club and, and outside of Charlotte, North Carolina on Lake Norman. Uh, so that's super exciting. And uh, helping Tiger Woods with two or three projects, which includes Trout National, Southern New Jersey with Mike Trout, baseball player, as well as uh, the Marcella Club in uh, Park City, Utah, just so, sort of part of the expansion of Deer Valley and then doing a couple of Tigers second golf course uh, at Diamante uh, in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. So that's what's under construction. We've got new starts happening next year in Austin, Texas, Greenville, South Carolina, my hometown, uh, as well as uh, Kiowa for the Kiowa Island Club, uh, also in South Carolina. So as a native South Carolinian, I'm, I'm super excited about this year is uh, getting to work in my, my home state. Uh, it will be something to be super special and, and uh, excited about. So that's it. That's all you got going on. That's it. Yeah, it's pretty calm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in my spare time, in my spare time, I help run the World Curling Federation. So <laughs> I will get to that. I, I that was <laughs> I, uh, I did not see that one when I was uh, 
getting ready for this one. But honestly, I, I want to go back to a, a part of that uh, answer you just said was time periods when you just sit around and look at each other. What what, what was that like? Or what, what what is that time period? I know we'll kind of get into some of your background as well, and you kind of breaking off uh, in that that weird time period post two thousand eight where the golf industry and the whole financial industry changed. Like what 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 was it like? Uh, kind of getting getting started. Yeah, I mean, I so I left Tom Fazio in late in six, early two thousand seven, and. That first year, 2007, it, things were great. I had a lot of business on the golf design side as well as sort of consulting side of some things we were working on. And and then you know, the world started to kind of come apart, but we were still fortunate. We had we had projects that we were working on in, in 08 and 09. And it was 2010 that was the year that really hit us where it was like, holy smokes, like, there, like there's nothing going on. And it was scary, you know, and... Uh, to some degree, the fact that we had kind of, we're a little bit of a different firm and that we do traditional golf course design, you know, what I call green tees and bunkers, uh, but we're also planners as well. So we do stuff outside of traditional golf architecture. And I think that ultimately behooved us in that that, that part of the business sort of probably came back first for us. But yeah, it was a weird time. Like, it's like, are we ever going to build golf courses again? And, um, and it, it wasn't fun, you know, at all. But, you know, I feel proud that, you know, never laid anybody off, never cut anybody's salary or anything like that. So we we persevered, and I'm just very thankful that we have the opportunity to do what we're doing now uh, with it being so busy. Not just because of economics, but like you get involved in design because you want to do stuff, you want to build stuff, you want to make stuff, and so it's just a very exciting time right now with the focus on golf and the capital that's available to be able to go and, and do our craft. Um, I'm, I'm just excited about what what, I, what we're doing is compared to any time in the history of my career in golf course design. Hmm. And if I if I read this right, there was a, a rather dramatic stop to business that happened. I think in 2010, right? You guys had is it six holes that were grassed in Dubai when the bulldozers stopped in yeah. 2010? Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that was probably late 2009. But yes, so we had the Dubai project. Six holes were grassed. I just approved three for. We had just approved three for irrigation. And I remember being on the plane leaving Dubai and they were having the grand opening of whatever Mr. Kirsten's resort was. I was drawing a blank the name of it. And the fireworks were going off. And and I remember just thinking, this is so surreal because the world was really in financial sort of implosion at that point. And, you know, sure enough, everything ceased uh, there. And so, uh, yeah, strange time for sure. Yeah, much preferred this time than that time. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about kind of the, the evolution of the golf course industry, I guess, just it kind of correlates, I would imagine, just with recreational golf industry as a whole. I mean, I've watched a bunch of interviews you've done just talking about, uh, you know, older interviews, pre-2020 interviews that are talking about the decline of the industry, the time it takes to play, all the concerns that were there in golf, which if I'm reading the situation, look, golf got a, you know, the world was hit by this COVID thing in, in a lot of different ways, but golf is one of the few success stories that comes came out of COVID. And uh, I'm just curious your perspective on the warts that were there on golf and the reasons for its decline in the 2010s. Uh, do, are they still there and are they covered up by this boom or did the boom, do you think, you know, remind people of how great golf is. And do you see this kind of growth being really sustainable and something that, you know, it keeps building on itself going forward? So I do feel like it's sustainable or this COVID effect is sticky. And I think that if you look at it, I think there were some things afoot prior to COVID that were starting to make an impact on golf in a positive way that I think COVID 
phenomenon sort of accelerated. And so if you really go and peel back, you know, what, like statistically, like where does this sort of COVID boom come from? It's sort of two camps, really, if you look at the data. One, it is people have never played golf, traditional golf before, um, found Greenfield golf, but they had discovered golf through off-course golf, so-called off-course golf. So the top golfs and other other things like that. And I think those like top golf to pick to pick on top golf for a second, you know, I think when I, when it first emerged, I was people would ask me all the time, is this good for golf, bad for golf, or indifferent to golf? And my initial reaction was uh, it, it's, in, it's it's indifferent to golf. It's not golf. It's something else. But I think I was totally wrong. And and I think what it's been hugely positive for golf because it's been able to introduce this idea of taking a golf club in your hands and not being intimidated by it. And so, so many people have discovered golf and I've got stepchildren that have found golf through Top Golf, and now they're fanatic about Greenfield golf. So I think the sort of idea of golf becoming more accessible, I think that had already sort of started a little bit pre-COVID and then COVID helped to accelerate that, helped drive, you know, millennial types from Top Golf to Greenfield golf. So that first year of COVID, 3 million people tried golf for the first time ever. Um, at the same time, the lapsed golfer came back and that's probably, you know, I probably fit more into that category myself. So, um, you know, people had a lot of time on their hands. Golf was something that you could go do. And it's amazing now, four years ish later, three and a half years later, I still run into people that'll say something along the lines of, you know, I grew up playing golf. I used to play all the time. You know, I got married, work, life started getting in the way. I kind of stopped playing golf and all of a sudden, COVID happened and I, I picked it back up and man, now I'm playing two or three times a week. Like I literally run into somebody that says that almost every week. And so if, again, if you look at the data, like all these lapsed golfers came back. And so I think all of that is not going to change. And I think that the other thing I think that COVID sort of kind of taught everybody is like us as a species, like we like to be around other people. And so being cooped up and stuck in your home, like, that's not super fun for a long period of time. And so I think golf is a natural driver of human activity and connection and community. And so I think that, you know, I think all of that is positive and I think all that's going to stay. And I think on top of that, you kind of look at how the population in the United States, at least is moving around and tends to be moving from places that are, moving into places where golf is more part of the, of the culture, if you will, you know, more Southern places, whether it be West or East. And so I think that's fueling a lot of activity of both new golf as well as reinvestment in existing assets. So I'm remain pretty bullish on golf. And that I think makes it as a design person, it makes it very exciting because one, there's business, there's activity, but then two, I think there also is, a, a, a reckoning that sort of happened in the industry of we need to deliver better product, better value to the consumer, whether that be a member or someone that's purchasing around the golf. And so, you know, you're now seeing, you know, more innovative type things in Greenfield golf, you know, whether that be short courses or expression practice or technology or what have you. But I think all of that is just sort of fueling a very exciting time right now in golf. And I'm excited to be a small part of it. If if I look around, I live in Jacksonville, Florida, and there's there's plenty of courses both in Jacksonville and in the Florida area in general that were built at a you know a time frame that golf was booming and real estate developments were booming, and we can just put a golf hole right between this water and these houses right here. And 
not a lot of them are great golf courses. Uh, there's a fair amount that, you know, yet at the same time, you know, they're routed pretty far away from clubhouses and take a while to come back. And uh, it's not simple to just say, hey, let's turn this into a short course. Hey, let's do this. Yet there is a course here in Jacksonville. It's called the Yards. It, it was it used to be called Oak Mar or no, I forget what it used to be called. Oak Bridge, I think it was. And it was terrible, terrible 18 hole course. But they took nine. They redid one of the nines. It's great. And they took the back nine and made it a six hole par three course and got rid of several of the, of the parts of it. And it was like eye opening to me just to say like, hey, this this went from a, a terrible 18 hole course to now a fun nine and some bonus holes. And there's a community that's been built around this golf course now. And I, I you. I've lost track of how many different short courses you've worked on. Cause I think you've, you, you know, you've been a part of helping us all see the light of the benefit of short courses for all the people you just talked about that are intimidated by the game, newer to the game. Personally, I would love a place to go play golf with my wife that does not have 440 yard par force. There's just no need to do that. Right. It's a totally different scale of the game. And I'm just, this is a really long winded way of saying we have a lot of green space that is being used by golf courses. Not all of it is the best use, how much of this like can be repurposed into something that is way more functional for the golf population as a whole? Because I see way too many hard golf courses and not enough entry level stuff in the game. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously every site, every place is unique in terms of what the constraints are. I mean, I tend to believe that all got all golf is good to some extent. It's open space. It gives people the opportunity to go out and play the game. Having said that, I think that some of the stuff that we're doing now is more responsive to what is great about golf and what the market people want compared to sort of the real estate line, you know, single holes line with real estate from the eighties and whatnot. And so I'm a big believer that there needs to be an entry point into golf. Like this is super not intimidating thing. As I alluded, top golf sort of done that to some degree, but like where I grew up in, in here in Greenville, South Carolina, the Greenville country club, we had a par three course that was sort of the domain of the juniors. And then we got good enough that we could go out on the big course which was um, old and very open, like not, not a lot of lost ball stuff. But then we had a separate satellite course, Chanticleer, which was at the time a top 100 golf course that was very difficult and hard. And so it was almost like there was this ladder that you could go, go through. And, and to me, it's not surprising that Greenwood Country Club produced a lot of people that are either really good golfers or in the golf business or just fanatical about golf because there was this entry point into the whole thing. You know, it's one of the reasons I got super excited about the opportunity to get involved at PJ Frisco because I saw the same dynamic there of, of literally, you know, North Texas PJ section, the Ronnie Golf Park, you know, literally introducing kids to golf on artificial turf, to driving range, to short course, to these two big championship golf courses. Um, and so going back to short courses um, and, and just practice and what I would call experiential practice in general. Like those are logical places to be entry points in, into golf. But on top of that, if you go look at recreational activity in the United States prior to COVID, the things that had really exploded were things that were unstructured in time, meaning you could go do them for a short amount of time. You could do them for a long amount of time. You could do them with people or you could do them by yourself. And so those things were like hiking, biking, walking, you know, th those kinds of things. Golf is always tended to be very structured in time. So if you and I decide we want to go play golf, like we've got a, with two other guys, we don't have to coordinate four people to show up at 10, 10 a.m. at a certain place on the earth, and we're going to go march out for four to five hours. Whereas practice and short courses, that's really what has been unstructured in time uh, in golf, or certainly practice. And, and But I think 
short course to me starts to be this more experiential practice or this experiential thing that it, it, it might still be structured in time to some degree, but it's much shorter in time. And so all of that to me is like a super, super positive as being a way to onboard people into golf. And I'm a big believer to call these things not par three golf courses, but call them short courses. Because one, I think they really need to be short to be super accessible. Um, but two, as soon as it, to me, like they're not golf per se. And so they're, you know, a lot of the ones we've done are activated by food and beverage, they have music playing, you know, people might even be barefoot, you know, whatever it is, like the, the decorum, the rules, not the rules, the, the feel, the vibe is very different than sort of traditional golf. And all that to me is very positive. Now, traditionalists might not agree with that, but for, to me, it is. And I think even me, maybe as a more serious golfer, at least historically, sometimes I want to the golf experience that's way more relaxed or I've only got X amount of time. And so to me, all of that sort of hits on multiple levels. That's super positive, super positive for novices or non-golfers, but all the way up to people that are very accomplished. And so I think that's super great. I think they work best alongside more traditional golf, just from a uh, cost standpoint in terms of like leveraging maintenance systems and costs. Like as soon as you start saying, like, let's go to a short course, standalone like you still have to have somebody take care of it you're going to get mowers you have a maintenance building all that kind of stuff and so some fixed cost into all that but like as an add-on to, to what's already fixed in terms of cost to me the short car stuff is awesome and so going back sorry this is long-winded but going back to your question about existing assets yes i think the idea of repurposing things in a different way makes tons and tons of sense and you know that gets into constraints and what the land is and what the rules are and all that kind of stuff but I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's partly what I'm trying to communicate why it's so exciting right now, because you're able to think that way. Whereas for so long, like nobody would think that way. It was very much, you know, we're doing 18 holes of golf and this is what that is. So it's an exciting time right now. Well, and I think it, you know, I'm not, this is nothing uh, that's news to you or really many people in the golf industry at all to say like, I, I'm, I'm on near scratch player. I, you know, I, it should be hard for me to seek out hard golf courses, right? That should be a challenge. They should be, you know, that should, I'm in the minority in the top whatever percentile of players, whereas yet at the same time, I still have a blast playing these short slash quote easy courses, right? I mean, the cradle, I've not played, I don't think I've played any of the of the short courses that you've done, but you know, if I go to, um, uh, what's it called at the, at the loop up at, at, um, at, in Northern Michigan, I forget the name of that one right now, but all of those are engaging. And it the big thing for me is when you're playing with somebody that's a 20 or 30 handicap, what 14 of the 18 holes maybe, or, you know, of the, of the non-par three holes, maybe say 12 of the 14 holes in some way, they're going to play their way out of the hole before they get the chance to hit an approach shot. Like the thrill of the approach shot. they're going to lose a ball. They're going to, you know, be in a bunker or whatnot and, and not get to enjoy the most fun part of golf, which is approach shots. Right. And there's a way to make them welcoming and, and, and challenging at the same time for higher handicappers yet also engage the lower handicap player. And it's, takes way less space. It's just all these things that we've been talking about for many years now. And I'm just wondering, do you see, you know, uh, do you really see progress in this area? Do you see like, the, you see this as a future part of the game of golf? Uh, if green grass golf is going to continue to grow? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's going to almost have to be because I think it's what the people want, you know, and like, I like I, when I started in this 27 years ago, I was like the youngest guy in the golf industry. And now I look at myself on your screen and I've got gray hair and like all of a sudden I'm the old guy, but you know, some of the things that have changed in the course of my career is like when I first started, you know, practice, practice range, traditional standard practice range. It was like really hard, you know, to get a developer to spend a lot of money on that or allocate a lot of land to that. But at some point that started to tip. And I can distinctly remember 
a, a real estate developer in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and coming to us that we'd worked with in the past. And, you know, his very first question was like, oh, how do we have the best practice range? You know, whereas 10 years before it was like, oh, I don't want to have any amount of land dedicated for practice. So, so that started to change, you know, because there was a market demand for more better practice facilities. And so now fast forward to current, I would say almost all of the new golf courses that we're working on, so some of the ones I mentioned, some of the ones that we're, you know, planning right now that I didn't mention, almost all of them are starting out saying, I want 18 holes of golf, I want a practice range and I want a short course. And so I just think it's going to stay as part of, of the deal is you know people want more options uh in terms of how they recreate and you know what they do and i you know i joke a little bit about that part of this to me is human nature like you know i grew up you're probably too young but when i grew up you know there were three stations on the television right like that was it you know we didn't have cable and so now fast forward there are thousands of television stations and you know i look at my stepchildren they don't even watch television or television and so you know so many things have evolved to meet what what people want. And I think golf is sort of in this phase right now where we are evolving golf into, you know, different forms. Um, and and it's, I think it's driven by it's like what people want. And that could be short courses, practice, putting courses, top golf, technology, simulator, whatever it all is. Like it's all very, it feels very evolutionary to me. And again, that makes it an exciting time. Yeah. And you just look at, you know, we have a municipal course here that's nearby they redid recently and it's a great success story and it's that's not the example i want to use other than to say like i've watched the the golf the the entire community of jacksonville beach like rally around that golf course especially during COVID. i mean 280 rounds a day i mean it just it was not like that prior to redoing it so what we're talking about here with the short course again if if, if it's city related it takes less land and it is serving a wider part of the community than just golf nuts right and that's that's kind of where i'm where I'm getting at, it just feels like things are progressing that way, but you have a much better view overview of the whole, you know, what people are asking for when they, when they go to build stuff now. And that's why I wanted to ask. Yeah. That. Yeah. I mean, to me, like the short course is like the, one of the most accessible, but punting course is probably the most accessible version. And then right after that would be a short course. And when I say accessible, I, I, what I mean is it's something that someone that's not really a golfer can go and do and not feel intimidated to do. Um, and I think that's super positive in the long run for golf. It's a way to bring more people into golf. But at the same time, like you as a good player, like it's still something that you can enjoy. So like it, it, to me, it sort of hits on all these sort of sort of different different levels. And I think all that's like super exciting. And, you know, and I think the other thing, not to get more into the stats, but like the other thing that's super exciting is about sort of diversity in general about what's happening in the golf space. And the stat I like to quote is if you look at, at the at juniors – and compare girls to what participation was 20 years ago, that number's over 2x. You know, it's increased more than double. And if you look at non-Caucasians, that number's like 5.5x. And so that, too, is another exciting thing, that there's demographics coming into the golf space that haven't been there in the scale that, that have, has been. And so I think everything is, you know, going back to maybe one of your original questions, I think all of this is going to last for a while. Now, obviously, it's very cyclical and economic dependent, but I think I think there is a fundamental shift that has happened in golf uh, over the last several years, and it, again, it's super exciting to me. Well, you mentioned Frisco in there, and I wanted to, that was definitely top of the list to talk about there. And I, I, I you, you talk a lot about 
your your overall kind of planning and building that you do on top of just golf course design. I want to know, you know, we got a chance to see that property. I think it's the only uh, one of your your design works that I've actually got a chance to play. Um, but that 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 place is wild. It is two championship golf courses, biggest putting green in the world, a short course, an unbelievable practice facility. Uh, some major master planning, I guess, went into that one on top of hosting major championships, hosting Ryder Cups, hosting conferences, all the things that went into that. What uh, I, when did you get involved in that project? Kind of what was your overall role on top of building and designing the uh, the West Course? There? Yeah, I mean, so my role actually goes back to like 2013 or something in that the North Texas PJ section, which has arguably, you know, the best junior golf program in the country. Uh, Mark Harrison, the executive director there, and I got connected and he had this idea of doing what he would call an urban golf park which was the idea of going and building a short course like in an existing city park. And, uh, and so we helped do some schematics of like how that could work. And Mark kind of used that to go around to different municipalities around Dallas, sort of pitching that idea. And when he got to Frisco, Frisco guys said, well, that's really interesting, but we want to do big golf too. And, and so out of this little spark, um, this sort of bigger idea of what became PJ Frisco happened. And so because we were involved in some of the genesis of that, we got asked to be on the, the, the list of architects to come, you know, present thoughts on it, you know, sort of a selection process thing. And again, I was super excited about it from the get go, going back to the Scramble Country Club experience, because the program that we're talking about doing was putting course, short course, a more family friendly 18 hole course and this championship golf course. And I just saw the opportunity that with PGA of America's expertise and experience and systems, that organization wrapping all that together, like it could be very significant, like on the game. And so we did this sort of crazy, crazy presentation that really colored outside the lines and started saying, here's what's not a part of the program. that should be a part of the program, which included a big resort hotel. And so any of that fast forward, we, we ended up getting selected uh, to do part of the project. Gil got selected to do the other part of the project, but we got asked to be the master planners for the whole thing. And so it ended up being a great experience. So that competition thing, selection thing, I think it was 2017. So it was a long process to get it all figured out. The site was super complicated um, with a lot of floodplain going through it um, and wanting to do you know a lot. And so what PGA Frisco is now is 500 rooms of Omni Hospitality, Omni Resort, which is the key funding mechanism behind the whole effort. But then you've got the two championship golf courses, the swing, which is the short course, which you referenced, the dance floor, which is the putting course, which you referenced, but a whole bunch of golf-oriented retail, as well as PGA of America's headquarters, as well as North Texas PGA section's headquarters, as well as some facilities for Frisco Independent School District. And so getting all of those uses and all those stakeholders aligned and programmed on the same site was a big part of the effort. And in many ways, what I what PJ Frisco is to me is it's very much a modern golf resort, but it also is almost like, you know, urban public space meets golf resort. And so it is active, it is busy, and there are people running into people everywhere, everywhere, but that's somewhat by design. I mean, we want the human side of all this to come out. And, and when I, I've been fortunate to be able to get invited back and I've done several events there. And one of the things I think is just so neat is that you literally see people from different parts of the country, you know, meeting each other on the driving range because they're getting ready. One's going to play the West, one's going to play the East. And then later that afternoon, you see them hanging out at the lobby bar at the Omni Hotel. And it's like, and all of a sudden, you know, they become friends. And, and, and I just think that's super, super awesome. And then you've got North Texas literally 
introducing the game of golf to really young people all the way up to competing on Gills Golf Course for these these awesome PGA championships. So it's a really super special place. And and then you take it on top of that, PGA of America's headquarters there, all their education, you know, 29,000 members can all get from around the country to, to Dallas much easier than they could have to Palm Beach Gardens. And so I think the, the facility's impact on the game is going to be quite significant because there are going to be things learned um, and innovated at PGA Frisco that's going to go back out through the PGA network, out to, to courses and clubs around the country. So super exciting place and highly recommend anybody that hadn't been there to go go check it out. I would agree. It's one of the few places I've ever been where, you know, the golf course is first there. There's a lot going on around it. I walked off and said, you know what? This would actually look really good with houses around it, right? Because it's just out in this field as of now, you know, and it, it now there's all the development of all the housing that's going to go around it, but it's all removed from the course and all the, you know, the golf is all going to play within the same kind of uh, grass development area and it, you're not uninterrupted by houses, all that to say. Yeah, I think so when we started, like you take people to the site and it's like, oh, this is such a great pastoral, you know, sort of feeling. And no, you know, Frisco is the fastest developing city in the country. And so what's going to happen is Frisco continues to develop around PJ Frisco. It's going to be more like, you know, the effect you get when you go to Central Park in New York. It's like going to be this oasis in the in the amidst all this sort of urbanity, suburbanity kind of around it. And I think that'll ultimately also be sort of a special thing. And we created all these wetlands and as a part of the engineering of the site, you know, to take those spoils to lift golf holes out of the floodplain. But the resulting deal is like there's all this habitat that got created and you know and in 15, 20 years, like it's gonna be really special because there's gonna be so much development all around it. I'm a, I'm a big Gil Hans fan and I hope he doesn't listen to this next part, but we had, we had an event there at Frisco and we hosted a bunch of almost a hundred people there. And it was, the West course was, I don't, I don't want to say unanimous, but almost unanimously favored in ter- over the East course. And uh, I, I'm wondering kind of how that collaboration worked between you and Gil, because he's obviously tasked with something very different than you are tasked. The, the you know, the PJ championship is going to be held on the East course. It's a hard golf course. It was a big challenge. Uh, the West, we, it was, it was challenging, but we all had fun playing that one and, and did not get our teeth kicked in. But I'm just wondering how, what the, uh, you know, kind of the mission was in that and how you, how you guys work together on the, on the same kind of land, creating two different golf experiences. We really had to work together a lot and especially prior to construction. So in terms of the planning, because again, our role is not just doing the West course. It was also planning, like how does all this work? And so, you know, our firms, the two firms worked very, very closely together and, one of the huge positives for us, PJ Frisco, it was the relationship that our firm uh, developed with Gil and Jim and their firm, uh, and that, how that relationship remains to this day. And so, really super special group of people that we were very fortunate to call call friends. So, there was a lot of collaboration in terms of the land plan itself, but working to get the spaces figured out and where the East Golf Course holes would be. Obviously, they were tasked with needing to host championship golf. And so if you were to take an aerial and look at PJ Frisco, the East course occupies so much more land than the West Coast course, because it's, it's driven by needing to host, you know, heavy spectator, you know, patron driven events. I think once we started construction, they would be busy on their side. We would be busy on our side. So it wasn't like we ran over and said, Hey, what are you doing? You know, they ran over to us every blue moon, there might be something, but it would be more about like what happened along the edge. But going back to the planning side, the, the beginning part, you know, there's a lot of talk about how do we want these two golf courses to complement each other? And 
you know, and it even got down to like the look, like, do we want to look the same? Do we want to look different? And it was like one of these debate club things. You could say, hey, maybe it'd be best they look totally different. Or you could say, hey, maybe it'd be, they looked like they were related. And we ultimately decided, the group decided, not just the design team, but the ownership stakeholder group decided we wanted them to feel related. Um, and, and then there was a big debate of like, well, is that siblings or is that cousins? And I think we ultimately landed more on cousins. Um, but the idea, we really wanted that, hey, if you had your group um, and you came and you played three days, you were gonna, we wanted you to play the East, wanted you to play the West, and we wanted to get to be where you didn't really care where you played on the third day. And I think we, I think we did that. And, you know, I think Gills is, again, it's got to test the best players in the world, but I think it's still very, very playable. It's just, it's, it's difficulties maybe a little bit different than the difficulty of the West, but I think they're two kind of wonderful golf experiences. And I, I feel like we've been successful in having an experience where the two got the two big golf courses with each other. And then one of the other fun things that happened is that we ended up truly collaborating on the short course. And, that was a little, kind of a funny backstory in that, you know, with my background with Mark Harrison going back to 2012, 2013 of the urban golf park, like I really wanted to do the short course. Like that's what had gotten me there. Gil had just finished not too long before we started talking about all this, uh, the cradle. And so he was very passionate about doing the short course. And so somebody ultimately came up with the idea, why don't you guys do it together? And so we both said, yeah, sure. That sounds great. And then we never talked about it again as to like, what does that mean? Like, how does that actually work? And with COVID, the practice range and the short course actually got delayed um, past courses. So it finally circled back around of, you know, hey, it's time to do the short course. Like, how is this collaboration going to work? And I really didn't know. I mean, like, I, you know, I think we're collaborators by nature, but like it was, at the end of the day, somebody's got to make a decision, right? And so Jim Wagner, to his credit, he came up with the idea of like, hey, man, if we're really going to do this, like, let's truly collaborate. And so we sort of split holes up sort of five and five, but we put cavemen that Gil and Jim shapers on quote unquote, our holes. We took our shaping team, put them on Gil and Jim's holes as well as like big walkthroughs with kind of everybody. So this collaboration goes down deep into the DNA of how it was built in terms of the people that are actually shaping it. We, you know, we're working with people they weren't normally used to working with. And I, you know, I think the end result is, is fabulous. I think it's fun. I can tell you, we had a lot of fun, designing it and building it. And I hope that shows with the, the people that, that go and play it. But from what I hear, it gets lots and lots of play and there are lots of laughs and fun times happen, happening there. Yeah. We couldn't get a tea time out there when we were, when we were there, it was so busy, which is uh, always a good sign, especially in the early infancy, infancy phase of it. But I don't know how often you get 30 minutes plus minutes into an interview before somebody asks you about Tiger Woods. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, put, I held it off as long as I could here, but when did, when did your relationship with Tiger Woods start? And for those that aren't familiar with how your relationship uh, has worked, what, how, how does that work? Yeah. So I was going back to my, I used to work for Tom Fazio and I ended up while working for Tom Fazio, getting to know Greg McLaughlin, who at the time was the head of the Tiger Woods Foundation. And, and when the foundation decided to build the Tiger Woods Learning Center, they wanted golf to be a part of it. And so Greg ultimately reached out to me and make a long story a little bit shorter. We ended up helping build the, the golf elements of the Tiger Woods Learning Center, which is basically a range and some putting. And kind of through that, I got to know Tiger and I got to know Earl. And in many ways, the foundation was Earl's sort of baby. And, and Earl and I would always joke about what, what happens when Tiger decides to do golf courses. And, and that ultimately, when years later, Tiger started contemplating uh, 
doing a project, he reached out to me to get my opinion about how we should do it. And it just kind of all more from there. And, you know, I think we got to know, we, we knew each other a little bit, not much. Then I ultimately helped him think through this and of how to, how to get involved in golf course design. And, and it just so happened to be about the same time that I decided it was time for me to kind of give it a go myself. So Tiger was sort of my first client. And he remains uh, somebody I, I try to help however, however need, he needs help uh, on the golf design side. And as I mentioned, going in, we, we happen to be fortunate to have two or three projects under construction with him right now. If I were to say, I'd say a fair amount of your job or the golf course design and, and build business is more boring than maybe people would like to imagine, right? I mean, it, it seems like so much fun playing in the dirt, designing golf courses, all, you know, designing challenges, hazards, all that stuff. But there's a lot of stuff that goes with it that I imagine is not fun. So do you see kind of uh, professionals that roll off of a, a playing career that want to design golf courses? What's the learning curve like for them? What are things that they don't really, you know, know firsthand when they go to design or, or, or to do like, how do you help Tiger Wood design a golf course? When I first sat down with them to talk serious about all this, I was blown away by his knowledge of golf architecture. Like I wasn't expecting it. And when I say knowledge, the reason I put it in quotes is it's not that like, oh, that's Donald Ross or that's Seth Rayner, not that, but rather his appreciation as a player of like what the golf architecture was telling him to do. So sort of the analyzing of risk reward or, or what have you. And, and he was so attuned to all of that. And then I felt stupid, like, of course he would be like the greatest player in the world. Like, of course he would know all that. And so I've always viewed my my role with him is helping him to do what his, his craft of like, he's got definite opinions about golf architecture and like what he wants to see and how he wants golf holes to play. And I, I just view my role as helping that to, to come out. And so going back more generally to ask the question, like, you know, the, the fun, the stuff is not the super fun is, you know, drainage and irrigation and all these sort of functional things that are very, very important. You know, the fun part is shaping and, golf holes and shot values and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Tiger Woods has got that on, you know, through the roof. And he's got very definite opinions about how he wants his golf courses to play. You know, he's a real student of Lynx golf. That's his favorite version of golf. And uh, and I think it, it sort of is mine, too. My mother's half Irish. And so I've lived in Ireland for a while and I've played an incredible amount of Lynx golf in my life. And so I think we kind of bonded on that, this idea of, it's fun to play the golf ball on the ground sometimes. And, you know, the way Tiger talks about it is that, you know, let's, let's allow the ground to be your friend. And so if you go look at his golf courses that he's done today, you're not going to see a lot of bunkering in front of greens and, you know, those kinds of things. Cause he, he wants people to, you know, be able to use, put, play the ball on the ground, but almost more importantly, like use your, use their brains to be creative and to think their, their way around the golf. And I think that's what he really is so has such an incredible ability to do that has proven, I think, very well in the course of his career. He's, he's a very, very smart individual that is constantly sort of calculating risk and opportunity and those kind of things when he's on the golf course. So I laugh when there's, there's you know, a, a data centric community of people on Twitter that will tell you that angles don't matter in golf. And it's like, well, I mean, listen to Tiger Woods talk about <laughs> golf holes and, <laughs> and that, what's yeah what's your theory on that well so I, what i would say and i've argued with some of those people um i would say the angles don't super matter when it's soft so when it's, it's soft totally. but as soon as it gets firm it's a totally different story we, we, one of the projects we just finished was was the sort of refresh refresh reimagination of ocean forest in sea island georgia so just north of you and they just had the jones cup there this past weekend which is you know topic 
50 some odd amateurs from around the world. And, you know, part of our work there made it substantially more linksy. And the weather was tough, it was windy, super farm greens. I guarantee you angles mattered uh, this past weekend at Ocean Forest, uh, given the conditions. And so, and I think to me, again, firm conditions make that be that way. But then that makes golf to me so much more interesting. So when golf is starts being more like chess and less like darts or archery or whatever, that, that, that's, that becomes to me where golf is really operating on humming on all cylinders, so to speak. And so I remain a big proponent of we need firm golf because I think that's the most interesting version of golf. And I think there's a huge market for that. My trillion dollar question is how do you make it more linksy, right? How, what did you do at ocean forest to make it more linksy? Right. I mean, we hear about the costs that come with sand capping places and not all soil types can be, you know, you can't just replicate links golf anywhere you want to in the golf world. What are some of the challenges that go with that? And what are some success stories you've had? Well, I mean, we're fortunate at ocean forest and that we have very sandy soils. And so, you know, a big part of it was just stripping material down to that sandy soil and then shaping golf holes to be appropriate for, those type shots. So the, the golf course used to have sort of perched up small greens surrounded by sand and we removed an incredible amount of sand and lowered greens, made greens much more large and then have much more internal contours. But so the natural conditions there are firm, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's certainly cost to try to make firm conditions where you don't have firm soils. And you could say, well, then don't go build golf, you know, where you have softer conditions, but you know, a lot of this renovation work that we're doing, you know, we're taking, the old greens mix and using that to plate uh, approaches into new greens so that at least we'll have some firmer type conditions, you know, around greens. And I think that's where it really becomes the most important. Like to me, I mean, there's the, there's sort of the, the linksy, you know, long shot, but I think almost more important to me is like the, the close recovery linksy shot. So, you know, when I, when we get down to the golf course and see somebody headed up to their ball, you know, off the green, I love it when they're, carrying something other than just a sand wedge and a putter. So they're carrying like, you know, a nine iron, a five iron a hybrid, like, and the sandwich and the putter. Like to me, like we've got something successful working there because now they're thinking again, they're using their brain. How do I play the shot? What's the best way to play the shot? As opposed to just all, you know, being on a sand wedge back onto the green. Mm. There was uh, an event held at El Cardinal Diamante in Cabo this past year, a PGA Tour, a fall series event. And I, I actually didn't get to watch a lot of the events, so if my questions sound silly, please feel free to tell me that. But from what I'd gather about the golf course, it is meant to be designed as a resort course, meant to be a pay-for-play golf course that's designed for recreational golfers. I don't think you guys built that with the plans that it's going to host PGA Tour events, right? So with that in mind, what, what was it like? Some players were critical of the golf course uh, in some ways. Did you have any reaction to that at all or, or you know, it's just a bad match for a PGA tour course. Yeah, not really. I mean, the, the, uh, I mean, you've nailed it. There was already existing golf course there. It was built down along the ocean in the dunes. It was Davis love golf course. It's fabulous, spectacular, but it was very hard, very difficult. It's very windy in that part of, of the Baja Peninsula. And so our directive from the get go was, you know, we needed a very friendly playable kind of resort course. So that's what we built. You know, the idea of having tour players was never in the, in the language or discussion about what we talked about. So, like there's no rough. So like all the PGA tour statistics and accuracy, like went through the roof because like there is no rough. It's all one height of cut. So I think we all knew the scores would be low. And, you know, I, I don't think anybody's super plussed by that. I mean, it is, it is what it is. We, we have another golf course under construction there. And I think the intent would be that the, the, the event will move to this new golf course. 
And so now that we know that, like we'll do some things a little bit differently in terms of how we put that new, newer golf course together, the Legacy Club. But I can't even remember who it was. There was one guy that was complaining a lot about the golf course. And like, I went and looked like the guys barely made any cuts. And like he had a big payday. I'm like, geez, like why the world are you complaining, man? Like I'm sure just be happy. So it's some variety too, man. I mean, it's, uh, and I don't know where do you, I guess, stand. I, I don't, you don't do a ton of work necessarily in with the professional golf game in mind, as I understand it. Right. You're, you, I mean, in terms of if, if I was to ask you about the distance debate at the highest levels of golf, how much does that creep into, you know, what your day-to-day work is like? I mean, so I think what we, we, we've worked on a handful of, of places that have hosted tour events. I mean, that, that world is not foreign to us at all, but like the majority of playing the game of golf has nothing to do with that. I mean, let's go look at the data. I mean, like the, the, the amount of rounds that that is compared to everything else is like minuscule. And if you go even look at just the distribution of golfers in the United States, you know, it's not like a bell curve. It's very much skewed towards higher handicappers. So we're talking about the elite of the elite. Um, and to me, that just doesn't move the needle that much in terms of what we do. Like, yes, if we have a client that wants to host a PGA Tour event, we're going to factor all that in for sure. But, you know, I, to me, the distance thing is, you know, what are we really trying to solve for? You know, it's a handful of very historic golf courses that are important golf courses. And I get that. But even like the action that's being taken, like it just doesn't it doesn't really feel like anything. Like when the when it finally became official, it's not like the next day we went and said, oh, we're not going to we're going to build shorter golf courses like that. That's not at all, you know, what I think. And I. I'm weirdly, I'm actually surprised more people might ask me about this because I'm, I think I may be the only golf course or one of the few golf course designers that actually has a degree in physics. And so, like, to me, the whole ball thing is, the whole distance thing is a multivariable equation. And so people are focused on the ball and the dynamics of the ball, which is one part of the variable. But, you know, I think by the time the rollback becomes effective, you know, it won't be the 15 yards. It'll be some lesser percentage of that because the species is just going to continue to innovate and evolve and get stronger and better and match stuff and work with other variables and this kind of stuff. And stat that I sometimes use is uh, when you talk about, I'm not saying that technology hadn't made an impact. It ha- obviously it has, but it's not the only thing that's made an impact. You know, when I first started, you know, people didn't look like Tiger Woods. They weren't working out and doing a lot of stuff. They were hanging out. They looked more like me. Right. And so now they're athletes, you know, they've, they've changed their bodies, they've changed their workout, their routines, and all this kind of stuff. And it happens elsewhere. And so the stat I like to talk about sometimes is if you look at field goals in the NFL in 1960, there were five field goals made in 1960 over 50 yards. Now, yes, there've been a little minor modification with kicking balls and we've gone indoors more, but like on a given week in the NFL, there are more than five 50 plus yard field goals made. So to me, it's a natural evolution of species is just going to continue to get better. And I just I think that this rollback is not super going to change much. And certainly for us, we're not, you know, we're going to grab length where we can grab length. But almost more importantly, we're almost focused on making golf courses shorter because one of the things that's happening is more and more people are playing golf longer and longer because of health and wellness. But as they do so, their swing speeds go down. And so the ball goes far and it doesn't go as high. So there's a lot of low trajectories. So how, how the dynamics of trajectories affect us is actually more on the short, shorter side in that, you know, if you have somebody that can only hit 100 and 
50 yards, like how do you have a green that someone's hitting a, a driver from 150 yards? Like how do you design that green? That probably affects my thinking more so than, you know, whomever the, the latest guy on the PGA Tour that hits the ball 350 yards. Like that's – I'm probably more concerned about that because it's just a bigger – to me it's a much bigger phenomenon. Does any of that make sense at all? What I'm trying to say. It does. No, it all does. It all does. And I think it. I, I'm pro doing something about about the distance. And I, I think this exactly to your point. This rollback does something. It doesn't change the big input to me, which is that you can wail on a golf ball and it's not going to go that far offline these days, right? And golfers look more like Tiger Woods now because the they're yeah. People focus on the golf ball, but like you know, hitting this big metal oh, God. things. I, mean, I, you know, I grew up hitting a small looking persimmon thing. And so to me, it's like a bigger, bigger question about like, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to solve for? And for me, for, for the most part, technology to me has been additive to golf. It's brought more people into golf. It's made golf more accessible, those kind of stuff. And so I just, I get leery of like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I know that the powers that be think they're not doing that. And I don't say they are. I just don't think it's doing that much. So I, you know, the governing body has been trying to regulate distance since the seventies. So, and here we are. So I just, I don't know. I don't know if the genie can be put back in the bottle, so to speak. Yeah. I, I guess the, the a point of asking that question to me was the challenge that comes to you. We were talking about people that are hitting drivers from one fifty. yet all like stretching out the limits of where the game is played has to be so challenging for somebody in, in, in your shoes. Like how do you design a golf hole? Potentially if they want to host a tour event, that it could be 480, which is a mid length par four for them now. And also play for somebody that needs to play from 150. I think the game is healthier in, in, a, in a better place when those, that margin is closer together. I know getting there is not easy, but I think yeah. it, everyone. Should and, I mean, so part that. of the things we and others in the industry are dealing with it. And PJ Fresco would be a good example. Like Gill's, Golf course thinks 7,800 yards or can tip out at almost that. I think ours is 7,400, but lesser par. But in any event, Susie Whaley was the head of PGA of America at the time, and, and Susie wanted what she would call senior women's tees. Um, her argument would be, hey, we as women learn on a tee. We get good on a tee, and we also quit the game because we're still playing from the same tee, and we can't, we can't keep playing. And I would argue with her, like, it has nothing to do with gender. It's just swing speed. It's just physics, just swing speed. But the point, her point would be like, we need to have the ability to have a 4,200 yard golf course so that somebody hits the ball 150 yards, the driver has a means of playing. So now if you think about 7,800 yards, 4,200 yards, well, the 7,800 yard tee shot is landing pretty close to where the 4,200 tee needs to be. So you can't just keep having tees everywhere. So a lot of us, what a lot of us are doing now is doing more of these lawn tees or ribbon tees or whatever you want to call them, like non-formalized tee boxes. And so the ability to sort of set up the game in sort of lots of many, many different ways. And I personally think, and I'm not super technology guy, but I personally don't see why we shouldn't be able to start having, not even having tee markers. And like you, you put a peg in the ground wherever you want and your phone or something calculates course rating, handicap, and like all this kind of stuff, and it's almost have like continuous kind of kind of team. It, you're, you're right; it's it's hard to try to. People want it longer and longer. People want it shorter and shorter, and it, it gets difficult. And so, what we're doing is just sort of make everything more, look more like fairway than that formalized tees. 
Yeah, that's how my wife plays. She just picks a spot in the fairway and tees it up. And you know, it, it's it. Uh, you know, there's no. Uh, there is a rule that says you need to find a teeing area, but when you play recreational golf, there's no real rule in it. But a couple of different uh, various questions here before we before we let you go here. But what is the latest with the South Shore Jackson Park uh, course? You know, uh, I haven't really Chicago? heard much about that in a while. Yeah. So I. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I hadn't either. I hadn't even thought about it till I saw it yeah. on your uh, profile. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, it's right. a challenging situation. You know, lots of different opinions, lots of passionate opinions. You know, Jackson Park is a very historic place where World's Fair was in 1894, and um, and so you know, the the politics of all that um, is truly kind of above my pay grade, I guess. But I was super excited about it, and I, you know, truly being something that could be truly impactful with golf, but I just, I just don't know if there's a political route kind of through all that. I, I would certainly love the opportunity to kind of finish what we, what we, what we at least had contemplated, but uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure that's happened in the near term. Hmm. What was uh, kind of some of the highlight projects you did uh, when your time with Tom Fazio and, and what, what had the most impact on you? I know, you know there was Eagle Point in Wilmington, there was Sage Valley, Elotion, Waterville, Pinehurst, I believe. What, what, what sticks out to you? Yeah, I mean, I talk about Eagle Point a lot because it was really early in my career, and uh, and he had these four owners that were awesome guys, and you know, I got to spend a lot of time with them, and helped with site selection, and you know, went through the whole process, and it was complicated permitting, got hit by two Class Three hurricanes during construction, and yada yada. And so to get to the end in on opening day, to see how excited those guys were, like it was like, man, this is awesome, and the golf course is awesome. But like the experience of doing it was uh, just so impactful to me, again, early in my career. So that will always be sort of a special place. Sage was one that, of course, is special. I'm a member there. So it's a place I get back to. So that's always great to to think about all that stuff. You know, I was fortunate to help Tom with a lot of the Discovery Land golf courses. And I think that's where if you read me talking about sometimes about how I got involved because of greens, tees, bunkers, like the test of the game, that's what got me into golf design as a golfer, but it was being around some of these golf courses that really were helping to foster community and, and kind of like this friendship thing I was trying to explain about PJ Frisco. Like I first started observing that around some of these discovery land projects. And I thought that was just totally fascinating. And I, I think that's what started to kind of veer me in towards kind of more human, the human part of golf is something that remains very important to me, like golf as a means of fostering community. So that, that all goes back to the Fazio days. And then, as I mentioned, my mother's half Irish. So, the Waterville experience was, uh, you know, truly unique and special. I happened to be with some of my family uh, on vacation on a place called Valencia Island, which is not far from Waterville, but it's an island off the coast of County Kerry. And, and Mr. Fazio called me and said, hey, I'm sorry to bother you on vacation, but these guys that own a golf course over there are interested in taking a look at it. And, uh, I, you know, I, I just I, I doubt you can go see this, but just given that you're in the country, you know, is there any way I could get you to do this? And I thought, you know, I mean, there's no way. I mean, like I'm in the middle of the North Atlantic. I mean, this isn't going to work. And I'm like, what's the name of it? And it's like, well, it's water something. I'm like, water bill? And he's like, yeah. And I said, well, I actually played golf there this morning. It's like the only answer of a place you could have said that would have allowed me to be able to go <laughs> visit. So I did. And and so that then begat, uh, you know, sort of ultimately sort of a three-year project there and made great friendships there and, um you know, really with the whole town because the, the golf course drives the economy of the town. And, you know, we would be there during the off season working on the golf course. And of course, everyone knew who we were. And, uh, 
and it just was really super special. And, uh, and I think our work there was impactful and significant and it's a place I love to go back. So it's, these are one of these questions I can all of a sudden, you know, I end up talking like 40, 50 places by the time I'm done. There's a, a one, oh, that's the point. What else are podcasts for? It's a wonderful <laughs> experience to, to get to work for Tom and kind of learn under him and be afforded such incredible opportunities to work with so many special people and special places. So, well, I wanted to get through all the golf stuff, but, but I cannot let you leave without uh, explaining to me your relationship with curling and uh, and, the, and the the role you play uh, in the U.S. in curling. It's yeah, it's bizarre. So I'm kind of like the Forrest Gump of curling. So curling is an ancient Scottish game, just like golf. They both started in Scotland about the same time. And to this day, it's very obvious to me that both come out of the same sort of Scottish ether. Like angles are important in both of them. Uh, they both have weird terms and jargon. They both are value-based sports where integrity and honor mean something. And arguably both are sort of excuses to drink scotch. But I got fascinated watching on television when it first became a demonstration sport at the Calgary Winter Olympics, which was 1988. And I, at first I thought this was like the dumbest thing I'd ever seen. And I kind of forgot about it. But then 14 years later, the Salt Lake Games came on and I found myself watching it. The more I learned about it, the more fascinated I got. And that ultimately led me to go visit a U.S. national championship in a place called Bemidji, Minnesota in 2006, right after the Torino Winter Olympics. And they were so shocked that some redneck from South Carolina would come do this. They kind of took me in. And, and this is kind of where the Forrest Gump part starts is I ultimately got asked to be the first independent director for USA Curling. And that led to me served on the board, kind of retooled how some of the championships work. That then led the USOPC to ask me to be part of the delegation to Vancouver in 2010. I ultimately got super involved in the World Curling Federation, became the U.S. representative of the World Curling Federation, which I did from 2010 to 2018, and then which took me to Pyeongchang, South Korea, Sochi, Russia for those Winter Olympics. And then ultimately in 2018, I got elected to be the, the, on the board of the World Curling Federation and then in September of 2022, I was elected to become the president of the World Curling Federation. So it's it's totally a nuts story. The long version takes about three three beers to tell. Some people <laughs> don't want to turn it into a movie, but it's been an incredible uh, experience. And you know, I think one of the things that you know I joke about how golf and curling are are have these similarities, but I, I honestly believe that if the world had more curlers and if the world had more golfers, the world would be a better place because I think there's this fundamental grounding in both games that say a lot about life and about how you comport yourself to yourself as well as to other people. And so I just feel very special to have the opportunity to be involved in these two special communities of people. I need to get, I need to get you out on the ice. You might be a natural, you, this golf thing, you may be wasting your time. Maybe need to get you out on the ice, throw some rocks. I was going to say, I know what podcast two is going to be. It's going to be, we're going to put three beers down and you're going to tell the whole curling story on that. Cause that is, that sounds fascinating. So, uh, well, but we appreciate your time. Uh, we greatly, uh, I'm excited. We're going to be checking out the hay here in a couple of weeks. Oh, I know I want to get a chance to talk about yeah. that, but I'm excited to see that one. But, uh, uh, we appreciate you telling some stories and, and sharing your perspective and I uh, hope to do this again sometime. Sounds good. Thank you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect 